and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Well Qualified, The Jains on Truth. When you're evaluating a philosophical theory, there are a few tests you should always carry out. Does the theory preserve our intuitions? If not, does it give us sufficient reason to prefer this new theory to our previously held beliefs? Does the theory fall prey to counterexamples, or leave unexplained exceptions? And here is one more test that should never be omitted. Can the theory survive being applied to itself? We saw that the Buddhist thinker Nagarjuna had to deal with this problem. His work, Refutation of My Opponents, tries to respond to the criticism that the arguments in favor of his emptiness theory can safely be dismissed, since Nagarjuna himself must admit that those very arguments are empty. It might seem that the Jain theory of standpoints we examined in the last episode is also vulnerable to this line of attack. They say that various philosophical theories are true only from a certain perspective, but is this assertion itself only the expression of a certain standpoint? The Jains can readily answer this objection. Take as an example their approach to the metaphysics of universals. Adopting their theory of nayas, or standpoints, they say that there is a perspective on things that affirms their sharing a universal character, and another perspective on things that emphasizes the reality of individual particulars. From the first standpoint, a realist about universals argues that all pots share potness in common. From the second viewpoint, a skeptic about universals will say that only each individual pot is real. Now, the Jain says that both standpoints are, in a sense, correct, because both capture something about reality. In doing so, the Jain is adopting a third standpoint, the one from which both the universal and the particular way of looking at things have contributed something to our understanding. Though this third standpoint may likewise be somehow partial, there is also the prospect of a most comprehensive, omniscient point of view that incorporates all standpoints. This is the point of view of someone like Mahavira, the last of the Jain Ford makers. It is the only adequate standpoint because of the complexity of things in the world. As the Jain philosopher Siddhasena puts it, since a thing has a manifold character, it is fully comprehended only by the omniscient but a thing becomes the subject matter of a naya when it is conceived from one particular standpoint. We normal humans are not omniscient, yet we can make progress by understanding how each philosophical theory contributes a merely partial truth. Unfortunately, there is another even simpler test that the Jains are in danger of failing. Does their theory not involve self-contradiction? Again, we saw this threat looming in the case of Nagarjuna, whose tetralemma argument form has seemed to some to involve entertaining contradictory propositions. We resisted that interpretation when looking at Nagarjuna, and want to resist it again in the case of the Jains. Still, you can see why they might be accused of contradicting themselves. As philosophical pluralists, the Jains reply to pairs of questions like, is the world infinite? and is the world finite? with a qualified yes in both cases, both express a partial truth about the world. Many commentators on the Jain system, both past and present, have felt that the Jain attempt to reconcile opposite philosophical positions does involve a challenge to the notion of contradiction that it tolerates inconsistency. How else could they reach agreement with philosophical schools whose theories are antithetical, 
finding something true in both the Buddhist no-self theory and the Advaita theory that all things are really a single self, namely Brahman. No less than Nagarjuna, the Jains are alive to the threat and seek to show us how we can have impartiality or non-one-sidedness without lapsing into self-contradiction. Their answer centers on a single Sanskrit particle, siat. It is an optative form of the verb to be, and it means possibly or perhaps. In this context, though, its meaning is better expressed as in a sense, or conditionally, or even arguably. We can use the term siat to capture the Jain refusal to make categorical assertions, instead answering philosophical questions from one or another perspective or within the framework of a certain metaphysical stance. Thus, rather than asserting without qualification that the world is eternal, we can say only, conditionally, the world is infinite, which means, from a certain standpoint, the universe is infinite. We could compare this to the use of words like possibly and necessarily, which modern-day philosophers and logicians call modal operators because these words indicate the way in which a statement is true. If I say, possibly, the universe is infinite, I am indicating that something might be true, whereas if I preface the same remark with necessarily, I am indicating something that must be true. In either case, I am not just straightforwardly asserting the infinity of the universe. To this, the Jains add a list of seven types of statement, or modes of predication, each of which is to be qualified by the word siat. This is comparable to Nagarjuna's tetralemma, though the Jains go him three better by offering seven alternatives where he only had four. Just as we trace the tetralemma back to the Buddha's refusal to answer questions, so we can discover the origins of this remarkable and unprecedented theory in reports about Mahavira. Rather than falling silent when confronted with philosophical questions like, is the world infinite and is the world finite, Mahavira said yes to both, but with a conditional yes and not an absolute yes. Furthermore, he was asked whether a question might have no expressible answer at all. Here is where the Buddha might finally have said yes, given that his silence was a rebuke to the question as it had been posed. Mahavira likewise admits that the right answer may be inexpressible, but even this admission is conditional, an expression of a certain standpoint. One Jain philosopher, the 11th century Vadi Devasuri, explains the theory with particular clarity, so we'll quote him at some length. The sevenfold predicate theory consists in the use of seven modes of assertion, each preceded by the word conditionally, siat, all concerning a single object and its particular properties composed of attributions and denials, either simultaneously or successively, and without contradiction. They are as follows. 1. Conditionally, some object exists. The first predicate pertains to an attribution. 2. Conditionally, it does not exist. The second predicate pertains to a denial. 3. Conditionally, it exists. Conditionally, it doesn't. The third predicate pertains to successive attribution and denial. 4. Conditionally, it is non-assertable. The fourth predicate pertains to a simultaneous attribution and denial. 5. Conditionally, it exists. Conditionally, it is non-assertable. The fifth predicate pertains to an attribution and a simultaneous attribution and denial. 6. Conditionally, it doesn't exist. Conditionally, it is non-assertable. The sixth predicate pertains to a denial and a simultaneous attribution and denial. 7. Conditionally, it exists. Conditionally, it doesn't exist. Conditionally, it is non-assertable. The seventh predicate pertains to a successive attribution and denial and 
a simultaneous attribution and denial. Now, Gardner's tetralemma distinguished four possibilities. Yes, no, both, and neither. We had a difficult time figuring out how he could get away with this, but are going to have to work even harder now to get our heads around the Jane sevenfold theory of predication. One difference is that for the Janes, there are three basic answers, not just yes and no, but also a third option that they label as the non-assertable or inexpressible. We'll say something shortly about what this means, but for the moment, let's just focus on how it gets us up to seven options. Obviously, we have three simple modes. One, something is the case. Two, something is not the case. Three, something is inexpressible. The example given is that something exists. For instance, there is a pot, there is no pot, it is inexpressible whether there is a pot. But one could extend the theory to handle statements about things other than existence, like the pot is blue, the pot is not blue, it is inexpressible whether the pot is blue. Next, the Janes combine these three cases to form new, more complex options. The statement, a pot exists, could be four, both true and false, five, true yet inexpressible, six, false yet inexpressible, or finally, seven, all three, true, false, and inexpressible. This gets us up to seven options all told, three simple cases and four compound cases. Remember, though, that all seven cases are prefaced by siat, or conditionally. So even the simple option where something is said to be the case isn't so simple after all. We can say conditionally there is a pot, or conditionally the universe is infinite, just in case there is a standpoint according to which these things are the case. This is compatible with the same things being false from another point of view. We already saw last time how this would work. Since the universe has no temporal ending, it is from this point of view infinite, even though it is not infinite in size, so that there is also a standpoint from which it is finite. Similarly, from the point of view that focuses on stable enduring substances, there is a pot. Yet from the perspective that focuses only on momentary sensory experiences, there is no pot, only ephemeral experiences of color, shape, and hardness. This contrast can also be brought out with more banal examples. If the pot is in Munich but not in New York, then from the point of view of someone in Munich, it is true to say there is a pot, but not from the point of view of someone in New York. This is relatively straightforward, but things get trickier when we contemplate the option of saying that something is both true and false. This sounds dangerously close to being a standpoint adopted by people who are happy to contradict themselves. Yet Vadi Devasuri prefaced the entire account by saying that the seven options do not involve self-contradiction. We can see why this might be if we notice another feature of his explanation. He says the mixed predicate, true and false, involves the successive attribution and denial of a property. So this would just be the standpoint of someone, like a Jain philosopher, who first notes a perspective from which a claim is true, and then adds that there is another perspective from which the same claim is false. This is quite sensible, and could be illustrated by the Jains saying something like, our Vaisheshika colleagues believe the pot exists, but the Buddhists deny it. The sevenfold list of predications is intended to explain how the theory of standpoints works, but it is that theory that explains why the sevenfold list does not involve intentional inconsistency. We're not out of the woods yet. We still need to consider the most puzzling of the three basic options, where the answer is neither yes nor no, but inexpressible. Here, Vadi Devasuri does seem to court contradiction, because he says that inexpressible means the simultaneous attribution and denial of a property. 
The natural way to read this is that there is a standpoint from which both a statement and its denial can be endorsed at the same time. So we are back, after all, to the standpoint of those who contradict themselves or indulge in paradox. Then again, as we already pointed out, the Jains promise that the sevenfold predications involve no contradiction. So he was under the impression that one can assert a statement to be inexpressible without falling into inconsistency. What is going on here? Several explanations have been given. One rather simple explanation is that we cannot say both yes and no to a question at the same time because no one can assert two contradictory ideas at once. Hence, the key Jane insight that both answers are right, but from different points of view, is inexpressible simply because of the limitations of normal language. This fits well with the way that Vadi Devasuri explains the inexpressible, namely that it has to do with simultaneous attribution and denial. But we find a different understanding in the 10th century Jain philosopher Prabhachandra. We've met him before as a source for Charvaka thought, but he is a brilliant philosopher in his own right, born in 980, the same year as Avicenna, and similarly full of brilliant observations and arguments, including, incidentally, a thought experiment very similar to Avicenna's flying man. More than any other Jain author, Prabhachandra really wrestles with the problem of what makes the seven alternatives in the Jain catalogue of predication actually distinct from one another, while also comprehensive in the sense that no option is left out. When he comes to explain what it means to say that an answer to a question is inexpressible, he does not say that it involves simultaneous assertion and denial. Instead, he ties it to the idea of neutrality. It means that, from the standpoint one occupies, one cannot endorse a certain claim, nor can one deny it. The point could be a very simple one. There are standpoints from which one can make neither an affirmation nor a denial simply because of lack of information. If I am in New York and haven't been in Munich recently, I might just shrug when asked whether there is a pot in Munich. Or here's a more interesting possibility. Let's step back for a moment and think again about what it means to assert something from a certain standpoint. It means adopting a perspective from which certain claims are ratified and others undermined. Consider an example the Jains could not have contemplated, namely modern physics. From the standpoint of the modern-day physicist, claims about the existence of subatomic particles are affirmed, while claims about the existence of the four elements from ancient Greek philosophy are denied. But regarding some propositions, a standpoint may be simply neutral or indifferent. Physics neither grounds nor undermines claims about morality. We can't work out whether it is wrong to steal or solve the moral dilemmas which so perplex the protagonists of the Mahabharata by studying modern physics. We might thus say that such propositions are neither affirmed nor denied from inside that standpoint. It could be in this sense that the answer is inexpressible. Notice that if this is right, it is different from the Buddhist idea that one should sometimes refuse to answer questions. When the Buddha declined to respond, it was certainly not because he didn't know the answer. A Buddhist would vehemently resist the notion that Buddhism is nothing but one more standpoint which may not provide the resources to answer a given question, the way that physics lacks the resources to answer questions about morality. The Buddhist standpoint claims to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. If it fails to provide an answer to a question, then the question is to blame. It must be somehow ill-formed or proceed on the basis of false assumptions like the reality of wholes or enduring selves. This explains why Nagarjuna's strategy was to expose the incoherence in other philosophical views, whereas the Jain strategy is to expose their dogmatic insistence on being the only truth, 
when in fact there is more to truth than the other schools claim. Thus, the Jains hold that there are ways to answer the questions the Buddha was asked, and in fact point to scriptures in which Mahavira did answer them, it's just that the right answer requires us to take up a standpoint other than the Buddhist one, indeed several different complementary standpoints. We have been insisting on the coherence of Jain epistemology and on its commitment to the possibility of attaining a true standpoint on things. This isn't just because it annoys us when people deny the principle of non-contradiction. Actually, it both annoys us and doesn't. It's also because we want to do justice to the fact that Jainism, like its rivals, is a philosophy in aid of a soteriology. No less than other ancient Indian thinkers, the Jains hold out the prospect of liberation and claim that liberation is achieved through knowledge. This is also why, as we saw last time, they are ready and willing to say that other schools have got things wrong. The partial perspective of a Buddhist or a Vedic thinker is not liberating, because it captures only a fragment of the holistic and comprehensive grasp of things that is nothing other than omniscience. Obviously, we haven't yet given you this kind of holistic and comprehensive grasp of Jainism itself. To do that would take many more episodes, perhaps an infinity of them, which, among other things, would take up too much storage space on the podcast feed. Still, we want to give you another perspective on Jainism by bringing in one more standpoint on their logical and epistemological theories. For this, we'll be turning to Marie-Hélène Goris, who is certainly well-qualified to discuss the Jain theory of conditional truth. She'll be our guest next time on The History of Philosophy in India.